Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden. Today, I'm interviewing Pierre Anctil and Richard Menkes, the authors, editors of In a Land of Hope, Documents on the Canadian Jewish Experience, 1627 to 1923. This is volume one, and it's published by the Champlain Society. A professor in the Department of History at the University of Ottawa, Pierre Anctil, has been writing on the history of the Canadian Jewish community of Montreal, as well as immigration, for many years. He has translated a dozen Yiddish books into French and is a member of the Royal Society of Canada. Richard Menkes is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of British Columbia. He is a specialist in modern Jewish history and anti-Semitism. He is the co-author of a history entitled Canada and the 1936 Olympics that was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2015. The book we are going to discuss today is the Champlain Society publication of 2023. This is a series that is edited by Jane Arrington. It is, in fact, our annual volume and is part of a series that started well over a century ago and is really the reason that the society and the podcast exists at all. Pierre and Richard, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit of the backstory behind this volume? Richard, what motivated you to find, contextualize, and edit this collection of 154 documents? I would say that there are a variety of reasons. Um, One of them is that I think that the study of the Canadian Jewish community is at a kind of crossroads or a certain maturity. Um, There have been years, for a couple of decades now, Um, There has been a fair bit of academic research into the Canadian Jewish community. Um, But first of all, I don't think that it's reached broadly into those who study modern Jewish history or completely into those who study Canadian history. So we're trying to do whatever we can to raise the profile of the study of the Canadian Jewish community. So we felt that bringing forward a volume of primary sources was the way to get people engaged with the material, uh, to engage with the research that's been done, but also to point to certain areas that we think still needs investigation. There are other areas of modern Jewish history where they have source books, but not in Canadian Jewish history. So it seemed the right time. So Pierre, what in your view is the value of an expertly curated set of original documents in terms of our understanding of history? And then maybe take us through the process of putting such a book together. Well, quite frankly, history is based on documentation. Um, If we do not have all the documents or if some parts of the narrative is missing, uh, then we only get a partial view of Canadian Jewish history. And that has been the case 
in the past. We felt that it was very important to document the most significant documents of each period. We're covering three centuries in this book, almost. Each document that gives you a sense of what the era was about. And also, we felt that we had to give a voice to people, to rabbis, to workers, to immigrants who were of Jewish origins and came into this Canadian world at different points in time and under different circumstances. So there's a lot of variety. It is a Canadian Jewish history, but it covers vastly different periods, vastly complex, different experiences. So our first, uh, I would say, problem was to give the collection a sense of validity, that we would bring documents that represent something constant, deep, and significant. And, and I feel that this we have achieved to a large degree by presenting rather short documents with very, very different backgrounds and very different provenance. Mm-hmm. Now, you've divided the book up into three parts. The first is from the Jewish community's origins in New France until 1881, and then the second part's the Great Migration, largely from the Russian Pale of Settlement from the 1880s until 1914. And then the third part is World War I to 1923 and the shutdown of immigration. So tell us why you chose 1881 and 1914 as the key break dates in the history of the Jewish experience in Canada. Well, basically, until Confederation, the number of Jews in this country, or what would become the territory of Canada, was extremely small. Uh, There were basically a thousand Jews in Canada in the four provinces in 1867. And so telling something about these few individuals and what their aspirations were was quite different from the period after the beginning of the Great Migration, when the numbers began to climb very quickly. The divide is the beginning of the East European immigration to Canada from the Russian Empire. And it's usually understood that the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in the year 1881 is a turning point, that it launched a series of new phenomena, that it pushed Jews from the empire to move out, escape pogroms, poverty, and limitations on their freedom, and move in the direction west, eventually reaching Canada in a somewhat later period than Western Europe or the U.S. But 1881 is clearly a turning point. And then 1914 is a turning point because, of course, it's the beginning of the First World War. It means that that migration that had started in 1881 is at least temporarily going to be stopped until after the war. Um, It also means that Canadian Jews are finding themselves needing to express their patriotism in new ways. 
Um, they're being told that they, you know, they're the country is is now at war, and Jews are feeling that they need to demonstrate their attachment to Canada by joining the army. And the Canadian Jewish community encourages Jewish men to indeed join the army. There's also significance in in the broader events in Jewish history in that after 1914 and uh, immediate post-war period, European Jewry is going to be in turmoil for a variety of reasons, which means that the old centers of Jewish life are now cut off and not able to provide sustenance or support for those who are in distress. And there's greater emphasis on the North American Jewish communities to take a leadership role in Jewish history. And that's largely the United States, which is going to be the largest diaspora Jewish community after Poland. Um, but also Canada gets caught up in that as well. So there's going to be greater pressures on Canadian Jewry to uh, look not just to Eastern Europe as a place from which migration comes, but a place that they're going to have to help support in the future. Now, as is generally expected in all Champlain Society volumes, you have a very comprehensive introduction to the literature. The secondary literature in this case, you identify its strengths where there is a fair amount of literature, but you also identify where there are gaps. Richard, I was wondering if you could comment on that. Absolutely. As I said before, it, the, the study of Canadian jury has reached a certain maturity, but there are indeed those places that we really felt we wanted to encourage um, the research to go um, because of these gaps. And I would say that there are several of them. One of the most important is that is a study of Jewish women and gender. And so we highlighted that with specific sections. It was a, it was a, a difficult decision whether to integrate the stories of women with the stories, Jewish women peddlers with peddlers generally and strikers, women strikers with strikes generally. But we decided we really needed to highlight that the experiences of Jewish women and to encourage others to look into it. So we grouped them together. I would say the other area that, um, that we put a fair bit of emphasis on was um, aspects of economic life that haven't always been focused on. There has been a fair bit written about factories, uh, clothing industry, workers. But in fact, the world of retail, for example, uh, which was so important to Canadian Jews when you look at the um, statistics, um, has somehow been ignored. So we focus a lot on the beginnings, if you will, of that retail world, namely Jewish peddlers. But then we also go into uh, those who own stores in Jewish neighborhoods, those who own stores in rural areas. So we really try to bring out that element of Jewish economic life. And I think the last aspect which is, was important to us was to have a certain geographic range. So while most Jews were concentrated in the three largest cities, namely at for most of our time, Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg, we really tried to show the experiences of Jews in other locations. For example, the farm colonies of Western Canada. Um, so we tried to bring out experiences that we would like to see more research done on. 
And Pierre, what were the sources for the documents you selected, the archives uh, and locations of these documents? In the first part of the book, 1627 to 1881, since there were so few Jews in the country, mostly uh, we uh, used the public archives. We looked at laws, regulations, and uh, number of of statements made by powerful people as to what could be expected of Jewish immigration, how Jews should be treated. Um, After 1881, there's a a potential growth of Jewish archives, um, mainly in the form of community institutions, community organizations that could produce Jewish archives from the point of view of Jews. And then we enter into quite a different type of archive. Um, It is private, and also it is more concerned with the well-being of Jews than the legal aspects which welcome them into this country. Um, We paid a great deal of attention to memoirs, experiences, which were recorded in the beginning in the late 19th century all the way to 1923 what was it like to be an immigrant in montreal or toronto what was it like to be a peddler or what was anti-semitism like in concrete terms and this we found often in newspapers private archives and archives of communities and largely as we move forward we found that we had to go into different sources and obtain a broader notion of what it was to be a Jewish immigrant or a Jewish citizen in Canada. In part one, you document the emancipation laws of 1831 and 1832. Now, what was the impact of these laws, as well as the Kimber Report of 1834, on Jewish Canadians? Well, These laws were crucial in providing uh, the Jews who were um, in the region with with full political and civil rights. In the early 19th century, we know that there was a Jew who was elected to um, to sit, represent um, Trois Rivières, Three Rivers, and because of a variety of machinations, um, he, w- in the end, was not allowed to sit because he was a Jew. And um, Jews were quite integrated into um, the world of, of um, the British settlers and had achieved a fair bit of upward mobility. But this was still something that stopped them from being fully integrated into the non-Jewish world. And so um, the provision of laws which said Jews, like everybody else, have full political rights, provided the Jews with an assurance and and an anchor in a society which just didn't exist before. And because there was so much insecurity about whether this was really true or not, there were still Jews who wondered whether the law was specific enough. And so there was a commission that was established headed by Kimber to indeed reinforce that Jews had full political rights. So it provided them with assurances that that were indisputable. In part two, you explained that roughly three to four percent of total immigration to Canada 
during the great Laurier boom of the late 1890s and the early 1900s were in fact Jews of East European origin, of course, many of them from the Russian Empire. Yiddish became the third most important language in Montreal, something which surprised me. Who exactly were these immigrants? Why did so many want to leave their homelands? And you've hinted at some of the reasons. And uh, where did, exactly did they settle in Canada during the Laurier boom? The Russian Empire was a backward society compared to Western European countries like Great Britain or France or Germany. So the emancipation of Jews in modern terms, the full participation of Jews in their society, lagged behind considerably in the Jewish Pale of Settlement. So in large part, those who arrived at the turn of the century were in a sense, very traditional Jews had received a very traditional education, but were in a process of transformation, deep transformation, leading them into modernity. So when they arrived in Canada, they were in the middle of that process. They were trying to escape the conditions which were imposed by the Russian Empire. They were poor. Today, we would say they are refugees. At the time, the word didn't exist. Uh, but they were not without education. They're not without political affiliations. In fact, they were often very committed politically. And uh, they had suffered a great deal in terms of anti-Semitism pogroms in the old world. They found Canadian society liberal, welcoming, and a place where they could thrive and meet their deep aspirations. So in that sense, one could say that they were a new breed of Jew, a new type of Jew, being formed by the circumstances of the period. As I read the documents, it appeared to me that two of the most prominent opponents of this immigration were Henri Bourassa, the founder of Le Devoir newspaper, and the British-Canadian Golden Smith. Uh, can you tell us, uh, perhaps using some of their own words, their respective objections to Jewish immigration? Well, Bourassa had received a very strict Catholic upbringing. He had absorbed the teachings of the church in traditional terms that the Jews were an obstacle to the full development of a Christian society. He felt that they would not assimilate, that they would be not good citizens. And he uh, made a speech in Parliament in 1906 concerning the possible influx of Russian Jews precisely, and he denounced them as greedy, immoral, incapable of being of, of having the values of citizens living in a democratic society. Mind you, he changed his mind at the end of uh, his life, and by the late 20s, early 30s, he became a defender of Jews because he felt that if French Canadians were to obtain rights in provinces outside of Quebec, then Jews should be allowed equal rights in the in Montreal and in Quebec society as 
fully accepted citizens. So it's a continuum from strong opposition and hostility to full acceptance. It took 30 years to mature, but at the end of his life, he was perceived by the Jewish leadership in Montreal as a defender of Jews. Goldwyn Smith was often thought to be this amazing Victorian liberal. But when you take a look at his attitude towards the Jews, you find something very, very different. Um, Already in the late 19th century, he accuses Jews of tribalism, that somehow Jews do not fit into a kind of high civilization, Anglo-Saxon civilization. Um, And it was often thought that his views were kind of, you know, just out there without any kind of practical effect. But in fact, when we looked more deeply at his words and we saw some of its impact, we saw something very different. For example, um, we saw the way in, in in 1905 he attended meetings which were against increasing Jewish immigration to, to Canada. He was in Toronto. We also know that privately, um, it was well known that whenever you went to visit Goldwyn Smith, that he was likely to go on a rant about anti-Semitism, a rant about Jews. Um, a study by um, Jerry Tolchinsky showed that he was getting fed some of the ugliest anti-Semitism from Europe by this one connection that he had. And we have, we have those letters. We didn't put them in the book, but we know those letters. He was getting fed this ugly anti-Semitism from Europe at the time, uh, racist, um, political anti-Semitism, and he translated it for a North American audience. He, tra- he made it his own and presented it to a North American audience. And, um, and it, was, it was very, very um, ugly. And, um, and he had impact, not just publicly, but on a number of individuals who thought him to be a kind of um, intellectual father figure. Right. I was also struck by an editorial in the Canadian Jewish Times in 1913 concerning the degrading occupation of door-to-door peddling. And I was wondering if you could read a short excerpt and tell us the context of this concern within the Jewish community about a very large occupational group after all. So I'll give you a, an excerpt and, um, and some of the words I think will start to answer the question. So here's an excerpt. When a Jewish immigrant from the lands of persecution arrives in Toronto, his townsmen or relatives immediately supply him with the means to secure a pushcart or even a sack and initiate him shortly into the art of rag peddling. It is looked upon as a good business insofar as it demands little capital to start out with. The peddlers, of course, who call at houses to purchase goods at the lowest possible prices journey around the nicer residential quarters of the city and by their large numbers and continual bothering have become extremely unpopular with the Gentile population who at best in Toronto have never shown a too friendly disposition to our people. So grotesque a figure indeed is he becoming in and around the city that Gentile mothers are overheard to quiet in their children with the remark, hush, or we'll call in the Jewish peddler. Thus, the child grows up to know the Jew as something to be afraid of, and consequently, peddler or no peddler, a Jew, to his mind, amounts to a bogeyman or some such appellation. 
What's going on here? Well, clearly, Jews are entering into uh, retail at the very lowest level. All you need is a, it, um, it is a little bit of capital or some help from a local store, or you're going around um, looking for rags or for bottles or whatever. And so these very, very poor Jews, often coming from the poorest district, are going all over town. And uh, to the more upper-class Jews who are represented in this editorial, it's an embarrassment and a concern that it fosters anti-Semitism. But in fact, um, probably many of those who were complaining were like eight years before that themselves peddler. So somewhat ironic. Mm -hmm. Well, based on my own research and looking at some major changes that occurred in Canada in mid-century, I was fascinated by Dr. Mendel Sheps, a doctor from Winnipeg who was uh, very important for a short period of time uh, in Saskatchewan in terms of the introduction of universal hospital care before she moved to the United States. And in reading about her life, um, I thought it's true. Women played a very large role in Jewish Canadian life, but it's a largely underdocumented role. And here in this book, you include a number of documents that really give us a glimpse into their centrality. Which of these documents most surprised you and why? Well, we knew that a large part of the Jewish working class in the garment industry was feminine. Mostly young women recently arrived who did not master French or English, and largely young women who uh, were not married and um, had not ch- did not have children. Uh, a few uh, newspaper uh, description which we obtained of the condition of these women uh, became central documents for us. Um, the amount of exploitation, uh, the um, element of, I would say, uh, being forced to work long hours, not only in unsanitary conditions, but also for so little pay, uh, put young women at risk uh, and put them in a situation where they could barely make ends meet, especially if they had with them older parents, older siblings, or sometimes younger siblings. So uh, um, this this was uh, crucial. Uh, women were involved in all pursuits. Some were uh, leading domestic lives. We, we also have uh, a very strong document on the bread strike, which uh, in Toronto, in the same period, around 1910, uh, Toronto Jewish women organized. Uh, they felt the price of bread was too high. They immediately moved into a position of demanding changes based on notion of, of socialism and anarchism. And uh, they were uh, quite effective. So the the ability to enter into the fray and to make their voices heard was very strong. And and that's not always been recorded in that narrative. Now, World War I brought many changes, including uh, the political salience of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, uh, Can you just briefly describe Canadian Jewish involvement in the war, including the creation of a Jewish legion, so-called? As I was saying before, 
Um, World War I um, forced the Jews to um, define and act on their patriotism. And so the Jewish community encouraged Jewish men to join the army, which they did. And, um, and, and there were specific recruiting campaigns. We have a poster of one. So it was, it was very important in integrating Canadian Jewry into broader Canadian society. Now, world Jewry in general uh, viewed, world, uh, viewed the First World War as an important opportunity because with the Ottoman Empire weakening and weakening throughout the late 19th century, early 20th century, it was recognized more and more that uh, parts of it were going to be coming apart and were going to be um, taken over by, um, by the great, quote-unquote, great powers. Um, Canadian Jewry, like other Jews, looked to British Jewry, to looked to Great Britain as a um, savior when it came to conquering, more specifically, Palestine, and 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 Jews hoped against hope that with Great Britain doing so, that the possibilities for a Jewish homeland would increase, and those um, cons- those uh, aspirations were confirmed by the Balfour Declaration in uh, November of 1917. So there was already a Zionist movement or a variety of Zionist movements before this, but these events really activated them. It made it seem much more real, right, that it's going to happen now. And um, and one of the features that um, some Jews felt strongly about was that Jews need to be training to become soldiers. So not only were they participate in the armies like the Canadian army, but a number of Jews wanted to set up a Jewish legion um, to to fight with the British. And um, and that indeed there was first the mule design mule corps, and then there was the Jewish legion, which did indeed become active towards the end of the war. And a number of um, Jews trained in various locations, including in Windsor, Nova Scotia. A number of Jews trained to be legionnaire, uh, members of the Jewish Legion in Nova Scotia. In 1919, the Canadian Jewish Congress was established. This is getting towards the end of the period covered in your book. Um, and uh, it was very supportive, of course, of the Balfour Declaration. I was wondering if you could select a brief quote from the minutes of the first Canadian Jewish Congress in Montreal in March 1919 to describe this and perhaps explain to us exactly why this, what I would call almost universal organization was set up when there were already so many uh, individual organizations. Why was there a need for this, this larger body to exist? So the uh, quote is from a March... 18-1919 session. In fact, I have two because the uh, people attending uh, the founding session of Congress could not agree on exactly what Zionism should be. So the first quote is the majority resolution. Resolved that the Canadian Jewish Congress instruct its delegation in Europe to cooperate with representatives of other Jewish Congresses and specifically with the World Zionist Organization, to the end that the Peace Conference may recognize the aspirations and historic claims of the Jewish people in regard to Palestine and declare that in accordance with the British 
government's declaration dated November 2, 1917, which is the Balfour Declaration, endorsed by the Allied governments and the United States of America that there shall, shall be established such political, administrative, and economic conditions in Palestine as will assure under the trusteeship of Great Britain, acting on behalf of such League of Nations as may be formed, the development of Palestine into a Jewish commonwealth. Now, a number of people present were left-wingers. They were people supporting a left-wing type of Zionism. So their minority resolution was as follows. The Canadian Jewish Congress declares its desire that the future Jewish national home in Palestine should be owned by the people that the land and all its natural resources sh shall be, at the very outset, be nationalized, that the railways and post system and other public utilities shall belong to the state, that the work of irrigation, canalization, forestation, and soil drainage should be conducted by the state on a broad basis of cooperation, and that the products and increments resulting therefrom shall be state property. So you have two projects, both Zionist, but not quite going in the same direction. Why Congress? Um, there were a number of very divergent uh, positions politically in Canada among the uh, leadership. And it was felt in 1919 that to help the victimized Jews of Eastern Europe, uh, victims of World War I and of the displacements forced on them by the armies, uh, that a united front should be created to bring forward sustenance, money, and support for these Eastern European Jews, a region which Canadian Jews in large part had left only a few years earlier. So that was the basically the sense that Jews should unite, but they should also remember where they're from. And in a time of crisis as World War I, uh, there was enough energy to achieve that extremely difficult goal of speaking in one voice. So when can we expect volume two of documents on the Canadian Jewish experience? Well, you asked earlier something about the genesis of the book. I should say that when we proposed to the Champlain Society that we do a volume, we sort of got the answer, no, we want two volumes. So it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, we're hoping that volume two, um, two will be coming out in 2026. Um, the themes for that volume are going to be obviously different than what we've been dealing with so far. Um, with the slowing of immigration in the interwar period, we're going to find a community that is more likely to be speaking English than Yiddish, or more people will be speaking English than Yiddish, which changes it culturally. Um, it is also a community, once the Depression hits, which is going to be facing intensified anti-Semitism. It's going to have to deal with the rise of Nazi Germany and the refugee problem in Canada. And then we're also going to be taking a look at the post-war migrations of survivors and the very new Francophone Sephardic community that ends up in Quebec, uh, as well as take a look at the questions of how is Canada going to deal with 
human rights and civil rights after um, the Second World War. And there will also be the question of Quebec nationalism and how the Jewish community reacts to it. Well, Pierre and Richard, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today and giving us that uh, preview. And we'll be sure to interview you on volume two. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. My guests today were Professors Pierre Anctil and Richard Menkes. They are the editors of the Champlain Society 2023 publication entitled In a Land of Hope, Documents on the Canadian Jewish Experience 1627 to 1923, Volume 1. This is published by the Champlain Society as part of its annual series. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Please let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. Podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. In addition, we want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on October 10th, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team. Mm-hmm.